of Romans. The book of Romans in chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, we would very much encourage you to use one of the Bibles provided for you. Uh, In the seats in front of you, you should find one there. And uh, if you do choose to use one of those Bibles, you'll find our passage for this morning on page 941. Looking at Romans 3, I'd like to read for us verses 21 through 26. Verses 21 through 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. An illustration that we often use to explain what happens to a person when when he or she believes on Jesus is to consider a report card. And this report card tells how well you have met God's standards throughout your life. What we have seen in the book of Romans to this point, beginning in chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through chapter 3, verse 20, is that from God's perspective, when He looks upon every human being's life, we have a report card of straight F's. This is the kind of report card that you do not want to bring home to your father. We have failed to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We have failed to love our neighbor as ourselves. Were we to take time to study each of the Ten Commandments, we would see that we all have failed to keep the Ten Commandments. On the Day of Judgment... With a report card like ours, God will be just, God will be right to condemn us to hell. However, when a person believes on Jesus Christ, this thing called justification takes place. Our F's are removed from the report card. And in their place... The straight A's that Christ accomplished in His life, in His obedience unto death, are written in their place. This is justification. Our F's removed, Christ's A's imputed to us as if we had lived the perfect life that He lived. We are counted righteous in the eyes of God. Now, so far in our study of this central truth of justification by faith alone, 
we have focused mainly on the second part of this. We have been talking for weeks about how Jesus' righteousness is imputed to us. About how Jesus' straight A's are placed onto our report card. What we have not spent so much time on is how our F's are removed first. We might ask, what right does God have to take the righteousness of Jesus and accredit it to us? What right does God have to write Jesus' A's on our report card in His sight? And the answer we've seen is that Jesus came and lived and fulfilled all righteousness, not for Himself, but as the second Adam, as the representative of His people. And because Jesus was our representative in His life and death, it is good and it is right in the eyes of God to impute His righteousness to us when we believe. But here's the question we haven't dealt with. What right does God have to remove our F's first? In other words, those those F's on our report card, those are sins. What right does God have to remove our sins? We're talking about every wicked thought, every wicked word, every wicked deed we've ever committed. We're talking about little sins. We're talking about big sins. We're talking about times that we hurt people. Times that we've dishonored God's name. Times that we've trampled God's commands. God can't just erase those off the report card and pretend like they never happened. Can He? Surely a just and a holy God, a righteous God, cannot just erase those sins and write Christ's A's in their place as if those sins never happened, leaving them undealt with and unpunished. If He is the holy, holy, holy God that the Bible describes, He must defend His honor and ensure the glory of His name is not impugned by the sins of this world. So how is it that God can just forgive our sins? Erase our F's? Remove them from before His sight? How can He be just and do that? That's what verses 25 and 26 are all about. This is our our last message in, in what we've been calling the Mount Everest of the Bible. We've been working our way verse by verse through Romans. We've come to verses 21 through 26. It's such a precious passage. Now we come to the last two verses. Very precious. Listen very carefully. First thing I want you to note is actually in verse 24. And it's the word redemption. Do you see the word redemption? Near the end of verse 24. How are we justified? How are we forgiven our sins and declared right before God through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ? This word redemption was widely used in ancient times to refer to setting someone free from captivity by the payment of a price. A ransom would be paid and the prisoner would be set free. 
So what we learn from this word is that in order for our sins to be removed, in order for our sins to be forgiven, a price had to be paid. What was the price that had to be paid? And who did the price have to be paid to? One very wrong view that has reared its head throughout Christian history time and again is that Christians, sorry, that all sinners are held captive by Satan and Jesus had to pay the price of his death to Satan so that Satan would set us free. In this view, God wants to save his people But His justice demands that Satan be appeased. Satan demands that blood be shed for these sinners. And therefore Jesus came and gave and bled on the cross and gave His life in order to make a payment to Satan so that Satan would set us free. Folks, that is a very wrong and dangerous view. There are several things wrong with it, but perhaps the main one is that it portrays God as having to answer to Satan. This view exalts Satan. It fails to understand that Satan is a creature created by God. Satan is a creature under the wrath of God. Compared to you and me, Satan is very powerful. But compared to God, Satan's power is nothing. God has nothing to fear from Satan. God is not obligated or bound to appease Satan in any way. Satan does not hold the keys to hell. Satan does not hold the keys to death. Jesus Christ does. The cross was not about a payment being made to Satan. Another thing wrong with that view is that While it is true that there is a sense in which natural man is enslaved by Satan, it isn't as if he has mankind bound by chains. The kind of captivity that Satan has over mankind is a willing captivity. That is, we just read it earlier, Paul says in Ephesians 2.2, that we were all once, Christians, we were once following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Who's that? Who is it? The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So our slavery to Satan before we became Christians was a voluntary slavery. It was like our slavery to Christ today. It was a willing slavery. We give ourselves to Jesus. We say, Jesus, I want to acknowledge You as my Master and to follow You and to be captive to Your will. Well, just as Christians say that to Christ today, unbelievers, though unknowingly, follow their Master Satan. Unbelievers delight to do the will of the devil. They don't walk around saying this. Most don't know it. But the desires of their hearts, the inclinations of their minds, have them walking the same path that the devil walks. How did this come come about? How did Ephesians 2.2 come about that all mankind follows the devil? Well, in part, it came about, it was a part of God's curse upon mankind when we sinned. 
We have been this way ever since Genesis 3. It's a part of the curse of God. You see, friends, man's deepest problem is not the devil. Man's deepest problem is the justice of God. Here in our passage, the devil's not even in view. For those of you who've been with us for weeks and months in Romans, we haven't even been talking about the devil. To read that into this passage would be very wrong. What we've been talking about ever since Romans 1 verse 18 is the wrath of God against sin. The righteousness of God. That God must be just. Our deepest problem is that God is holy and we are not. To whom must a price be paid if we're to be forgiven of our sins? It is to God that the price must be paid. It is God's justice that demands satisfaction. Are we clear on that? Let's make sure we're clear on that. Yes, Satan demands that our sins be paid for too, but that's because he wants us to pay for it in hell. But God shows His wisdom in devising a way of salvation in which our sins can be paid for and He can still be just in bringing His children into His blessing forever. Why did Jesus Christ come to earth? Jesus told us, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Who was this ransom to be paid to? Who was His death ultimately for? Friends, in the Old Testament, when God's people brought a, a, a sheep to be slaughtered, and they, in their minds, placed their sin upon that sheep, and then slaughtered that sheep as a sacrifice, who did they sacrifice the sheep to? To Satan? That's right. To God. That's right. To the justice of God. All of that was meant to preach Christ to us. But there's another word in our passage that makes this even more clear. Look with me at verse 25. Put your finger on the word propitiation. Friends, I hope you know and love this word. This word ought to be precious to you. If you're a Christian, this ought to be deep in your vocabulary. Propitiation. Jesus Christ was our propitiation. What does this word refer to? It refers to a means of appeasement. The idea is that God and His justice and His righteousness is angry at our sins as He ought to be. God in His holiness is angry at sin. His justice must be appeased. In His righteousness, in His love of all that is good, God has a holy anger towards sin. God has a holy right anger towards those who rebel against Him. And a propitiation is something that appeases that anger. It quenches the anger. It 
satisfies the anger so that the anger is removed and all that is left is love. How can God's just and holy anger against sin be appeased? Jesus Christ was our propitiation. Friends, listen carefully. At the cross of Jesus Christ, the anger of God against our sin was fully vented unto Jesus. All the punishment that justice demanded was poured out upon God's only beloved Son. Because all of God's wrath against our sin was fully poured out on Christ. All of the judgment, all of the condemnation was poured out to Christ on the cross. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The wrath removed. The sins paid for. The key to understanding this word propitiation is recognizing that just as Jesus represented us in His perfect life so that His perfection could be credited to us, so Jesus represented us in His death. Our guilt placed on Him. Our debt to God's justice laid upon His shoulders. God treated Jesus at the cross as our representative. He bore the wrath we deserved. And God was just to punish Jesus for your sin. For Jesus chose to be the second Adam. Jesus chose to take on this role. Jesus willingly, voluntarily chose to endure this for our sake as His people. Jesus loves His bride to the point of death. Husbands, love your wives that way. Notice the first words of verse 25. Whom God put forward. Yes, it is God's justice that demanded our sins be paid for. But it was also God the Father who made a covenant with His Son in eternity past to set Him forward, to put Him forward as a ransom for many. Remember a few months back we were in Genesis and we were studying the story of Abraham and Isaac on Mount Moriah, the almost sacrifice of Isaac. And do you remember how we, in, in, as we studied that passage... We saw that Abraham willingly laid his son upon the altar and that Isaac cooperated and was willing to be laid upon the altar. So it was here at the cross. The father willingly brings his son to the cross, puts him forward as our propitiation, and Jesus Christ willingly lays himself upon the cross for our sake. Jesus said, no one takes my life from me. No, the Son of Man lays it down. And he says, I have authority to lay it down, and if I will lay it down, I will raise it up again. God the Father, Christ the Son, both willing for Christ to die for us. At the cross, the perfect plan of God, scripted in eternity past, came to fruition. Because at this moment, listen carefully, because this is what verses 25 and 26 are all about. At the cross, the justice of God and the mercy of God 
fell into perfect harmony concerning your salvation. As many of the old hymns used to sing, at the cross, justice and mercy kissed. Because of Jesus being our propitiation, God can be just and forgive you your sins and remove your F's off the report card. Do you see the words by His blood? Do you see those words there? By His blood? Throughout the Bible, blood is seen as the stuff of life. When someone's blood is being shed, the idea is that their life is being poured out. And so what Paul was saying is that Jesus' very life, the most precious life ever to grace planet earth, a life worth more than all of the bazillions of dollars that this world can create, a life worth more than everything in the universe put together, that infinitely valuable life was shed, was brought to death. God imputed to Jesus every sin of every believer who had ever lived or would ever live and then took Jesus' life. Every animal whose blood had been poured out as a propitiation throughout the centuries, folks, Old Testament Judaism was a bloody religion. There was blood everywhere. Animals slaughtered by the thousands. And it was all meant to point to this day when the very life of God would die. It just boggles the mind. God can't die. God became a man so He could die. The wages of sin is death. And death, both physical and spiritual, is what Christ endured at the cross. Do you see the phrase, to be received by faith? To be received by faith. At the cross, both sides of justification were provided for. This is so good. How can God remove our sin from before His eyes? By having them fully punished. That happened at the cross. God is just to forgive us our sins. And how can God be just to add A's to our report card to make us righteous in His sight? Well, Christ was perfect up to His last breath. He accomplished perfect obedience, perfect righteousness, all the way from the moment of His birth to His final breath on the cross. And that perfection is what makes it right for God to count us righteous in His sight. For it was accomplished for us. How is it that you and I can be justified in the sight of God? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. But friends, this redemption, all this that Christ accomplished, it is only ours through faith. Listen carefully. There's, there's, there's wrong teaching about this. Christ did not represent every human being in His life and death. He just didn't. Jesus is one with His bride. Jesus is one with His church. Jesus is the head of His people. It was for His people that He lived and that He died. How does a person become one of those that is united to Christ? Through faith. When one sees Christ as a perfect Savior, for sinners. 
runs to him, rests in him, follows him. This is how justification becomes his. Christ did everything necessary for you to be saved. All you have to do is receive it through faith. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in my heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Dear friends, seeking to be right with God through your own deeds is a heavy yoke to bear, so heavy it will crush you. But being made right through Jesus Christ by following Him is an easy yoke to bear. For Christ has already done all the work required to make you right with God. Why did God design salvation to work this way? God designed salvation to work this way so that His righteousness would be exalted. Verse 26. It was to show His righteousness. Right? Middle of verse 25. This was to show God's righteousness. Here is the difference between Christianity and every other religion of the world. Every, well, lots of other religions have gods who forgive sins, but no other religion has a God who is just in forgiving sins. There is no other God preached in the history of the world that can be both just and the justifier. Allah has no cross. See that through the cross, God has proven Himself just in forgiving sins. Look, look, verse 25, this was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. God, You blessed Abraham? You, you blessed David? You blessed Moses? These were criminals in Your sight. These were sinners. God, how dare you bless these people? How dare you save their souls? How can you be holy and bless criminals? The cross. Their sins were to be paid for at the cross. They were righteous in His sight because they believed in the Messiah. Here is the wisdom of God on full display. God is just in forgiving sinners, past sinners, Present sinners, future sinners, because of the cross of Christ. One other thing I would point out very quickly is that Old Testament believers were saved the same way that New Testament believers are saved. They were saved by believing on Jesus Christ and being justified in the sight of God. God is the just is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And then in verse 25 it goes and talks about Old Testament saints as divine forbearance concerning former sins. Old Testament saints, by the way, just in case you're you're not familiar with this, when we're talking about saints, we're not talking about Catholic Church special holy people. Saints are simply those people who have been saved. Saints are people who have been graced with salvation by God. They're often the worst of sinners who have found forgiveness. 
Old Testament saints didn't know that the Messiah's name would be Jesus. But dear friends, Old Testament saints knew that a Messiah had been promised. From Genesis 3.15 on, the gospel truth that God was going to make a way of salvation through a Messiah was preached. Abraham was promised an offspring through whom all the promises of God would be fulfilled. Jacob spoke of the young lion that would emerge from the tribe of Joseph, the one, over whom, the one to whom all people would owe their obedience. Moses recorded the prophecy of Balaam about a victorious king that would arise in the last days whose appearance would be marked by a special star in the sky. The sacrifices of Israel, the, the, the Levitical priesthood, it all preached a Messiah who would come. David wrote of Christ in explicit terms in the Psalms. The prophet spoke of Christ in explicit terms. When Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, was on the road to Emmaus with those two men, he opened up their Old Testament Bible and showed them how the entire Old Testament was about him. It preached him. Old Testament saints weren't saved in a different way than you and I are. There is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus to be received by faith. The only difference today in our New Testament day is that we have, well, Old Testament saints had the gospel in shadow. You and I have the gospel in all of its glorious colors. We have it in beauty that they did not know. We know the name of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. We know how He made a way of salvation through His perfect life, His perfect death, His resurrection and His exaltation, His interceding for us at the right hand of God this very moment, and His return to come back and get us. We know that stuff. They only had it in shadow. But please don't imagine two ways of salvation in your mind. There has always been and there will always be one way of salvation. Justification by faith in Jesus Christ. Amen? So, as we wrap up our study of these verses, what, what have we learned from the Mount Everest of the Bible? Well, over the past many weeks, we've learned that unrighteous people can be declared righteous in the sight of God through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus by believing on Him. We can be assured of God's favor. We can be assured of heaven. We can be assured of God's love by turning to Christ and living by faith in Him. Friends, this is the good news that saves our souls. Romans 1, Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So church, now having seen the gospel, now having studied the gospel that is the power of God, let us cling to it and let us never let this gospel go. John Stott has said, John Stott says, all around us we see Christians and we see churches relaxing their grasp on the gospel. They're fumbling it. They are in danger of letting it drop from their hands altogether. May God spare us if that ever happens to us. This is the most precious truth of all the Bible for sinners. We need to protect this truth, Mount Hermon Missionary Baptist Church. 
Paul told Timothy, follow the pattern of sound words that you heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Friends, we have been entrusted with this Gospel. Let us guard it well. Let's not fall into speaking of the Gospel in vague terms. Ask Jesus in your heart. It's not the Gospel! And it won't save! People go to hell teaching stuff like that. The Gospel is believe on Jesus Christ who accomplished everything you need in His life, death, and resurrection. Cling to Him. You will be saved for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How do we protect and preserve this gospel? Not by locking it away somewhere, but by repeating it over and over and over again from the pulpit, in Sunday school classes, around dinner tables at home, in phone conversations, in the psalms and the hymns and the songs that we sing. Protect the gospel and preserve the gospel by saying it again and again and again and again. This message, more than any other, must be in the forefront of our life together as a church. And this is love. In this is love. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. You lose the gospel. You lose the meaning of real love. I'm almost done. Just listen up. Charles Spurgeon, in a sermon preached in 1886, that was 14 years before this church was founded, Charles Spurgeon said this, If ever there should come a wretched day, when all our pulpits shall be full of modern thought, and the old doctrine of a substitutionary sacrifice shall be exploded, well then there will remain no word of comfort for the guilty, no word of hope for the despairing. Hushed will be forever those silver notes which now console the living and cheer the dying. A dumb spirit will possess this sullen world. No voice of joy will break the blank silence of despair. The Gospel speaks through the propitiation for sin. If that be denied, it speaketh no more. If we lose this doctrine of propitiation, Christ our substitute, living and dying for us, appeasing the wrath of God, if we lose the doctrine of justification by faith alone, church, we have nothing else to offer. We might as well go home and go fishing or something. That Gospel is everything to us. The gospel has its enemies. The world we live in has a thousand messages, many of which are good and needful. How easy it would be for the gospel to just blend in among these other messages. Yes, somebody in our nation, what do Christians what do Christians believe? Well, they're against abortion. What do Christians believe? They don't like gay marriage. What do Christians believe? Well, they don't believe in evolution. Friends, those things may be well and good. Indeed, those three things are well and good. But are those things the, main, the things that we ought to be mainly known for? What is the message of Christianity? No to abortion? No to gay marriage? Is that the Gospel? 
Is somebody saved from that message? Folks, let us take stands on important issues, but the Gospel must be preeminent in our lives, in your family life, in our church, in our communities, and if we care about our nation, in our nation. The message that Christ has called us to believe and proclaim in the highways and the hedges and the streets and in the rooftops is Jesus Christ crucified for the forgiveness of sins. Satan hates the gospel. He's doing his work against it. And our own flesh hates the gospel. There are parts of us that would not want to think about the gospel. There are parts of us that would rather be too busy or too distracted to hear this. There's a part of us that wants the gospel to become boring, old hat to us. Why? Because the gospel tells us that we are nothing and Christ is everything. And our pride doesn't like that. That's why we'll trade a hundred gospel hymns for other songs that talk about us and the things of this world. But it is the truth. It is the gospel that sets us right. It is the gospel that gives us the right understanding of who we are. It is the gospel that tells us who Christ is. It is the gospel that tells us what life is all about. And so for the sake of our souls, for the sake of those that we want to win the Christ, for the sake of the glory of God in this church and in this community, Mount Hermon Missionary Baptist Church, cling, hold fast to the gospel. I have a different way of closing here, but here's how we need to close. Do you believe the gospel? Do you trust in the Jesus of the gospel? Have you come to a place in your life, not a one-time decision, no, 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 where your whole heart has been changed so that every day you are resting in Christ? Every day you are acknowledging, oh, I'm such a sinner. I'm messing up in so many ways. I'm such a sinner. Oh, but Jesus Christ, I turn to you. I rest in you and in you. I know I am loved by God. In you, I know my sins are forgiven. In you, I know I am going to heaven. In you, I know I have help to face the trials of this day. Jesus Christ, because of your work, I rest in you. Do you know what that kind of life is like? Well, dear friends, I pray that you would trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that God would give you the ability this very moment to have eyes to see His glory, to fall in love with Him, to rest in Him. Let's pray. So I'll just take a few moments and talk quietly with our Father. If you're an unbeliever, you take this time to confess your sin, to run to Christ.